There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. It's the rate that's a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello, beautiful people. I am Georgia Scheel, your host for episode 82 of Climactic. One of the fun things about being a host for this show is that sometimes I get to interview my friends, people I've always admired and lean on for wisdom and support. Today's episode is just that. Asha Kaler has lived corporate social responsibility both in the UK and Australia for 15 years and has helped organisations and local governments grow sustainably and drive positive change. I had the pleasure of getting to know Asha quite intimately when we spent eight months completing the Centre for Sustainability Leadership Fellowship course in 2017. Say that ten times. Asha is considered, she's a thoughtful leader, and she taps deep into purpose. She's approachable and she's open. I love spending time with her, and I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So sit down with us as we reflect on 15 years of corporate social responsibility, the aha moments that solidified her purpose and voice, the strong link between girls' education and climate change, owning your story, and of course, a quick trip to the Sustainability Development Goals or the SDGs for good measure. Without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation. So Asha, this is fantastic. Good friend of mine sitting in this gorgeous, bright sunroom in Bellevue on a Saturday. So it's nice to see you. It's been a while since I've seen you yeah. and it's really oh. it's exciting to be talking to you on the podcast today. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Now, we met doing a fellowship course and it was really amazing working with you for eight months um, and I was probably one of the least experienced of the crew had only just sort of dubbed like my little toe in the water but you've actually been working in sustainability for 15 years across countries as well so I'd love to learn a little bit more about your evolution through corporate social responsibility so sort of where you started and how your careers evolved. Yeah well I started in human resources funnily enough because mm. I did a psychology degree at uni and I was always very interested in people and, you know, behaviour and what made people tick and went into human resources in a large organisation back in the UK and realised I hated it because it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. You know, I thought it was more about helping people in the workplace when actually it was more about redundancies and, you know, grievances and those kind of things. And um, so very quickly made my exit from human resources and uh, moved into CSR. So this would have been, you know, yeah, back in the UK. You know, at that time, CSR was very much around uh, community focus and giving money to charity, and and then sustainability in terms of like corporate sustainability was just starting to emerge. That's when I started working in the space. So it's quite exciting to be in it from you know the very beginning, from when companies were first starting to set up carbon management programs and starting to put targets in place and. Yeah, so that's basically when I started back in the UK and worked in that space for 10 years over there for two large corporations and then moved to Australia and I've been here for five years now. Mm. And so what's, um, I'm interested to know within that space, like what has changed and how has it evolved? Because 15 years in 
the sustainability terms is actually quite a long time. I'd like to think we've quite we've moved forward, we've progressed in that time. What have you seen change? I saw a big change from the UK to Australia, so that's probably the first thing. So when I moved here, the corporate landscape was very different. Mm. I felt the cor- the corporate scene here was not as progressed. I, I kind of felt like I'd step back five or ten years, <laughs> and um, for <laughs> for that reason, um, went to actually work in local government because I felt that a lot of the local governments were doing more than a lot of the businesses here. So I did ha- actually have a bit of a career change then and I worked in local government and sustainable communities for a few years mm-hmm. um, and then subsequently went back into corporate. So that was the first change that you know was huge for me, moving countries. Um, the other thing is that I think businesses have started to see it more as a strategic issue as opposed to a PR or marketing issue and that's changed a lot as well. So Back in the day, sustainability or CSR might have been tagged onto the marketing teams, whereas now it might be more operational or it might be more, um, you know, much more strategic. Or you know, mm-hmm. so that that's definitely changed, and that's a good thing because it means it's getting more embedded mm-hmm. into the organisation as opposed to paying lip service. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing has changed is consumer sentiment and the public. So, you know, certainly over the last three to five years. You know, obviously the climate debate is much more forefront for people. Um, the the waste issue, the plastic pollution. You know, people are talking about this more than they ever have done, and that wasn't the case 15 years ago. Mm. Um, you know, I used to say to people 15 years ago, "Oh yeah, I work in sustainability," and they would give me a blank look and be like, "You know, what the hell's all that about?" And they'd be like, "Oh yeah, yeah," but they didn't understand. Whereas now, if I used to say to people I work in sustainability, they'd be like that's really great you know we, we really need that we need people like you and it's like you know so it's definitely changed in that understanding mm. um which is good for me then people know what I do <laughs> I don't get the blank look <laughs> yeah and you worked in local council here in Sydney and I find as you pointed out corporate social responsibility is becoming more and more about managing risk like genuine risk as opposed to the lip mm. service you might say or more less about the the PR it's actually about how can we get our stakeholders together or our supply chain and actually make change because we need to manage this risk mm. like that would be something that the message for, at least from someone who doesn't work specifically there that's what it sounds like that's what the conversation is but would you say that that is true or do you think that's a bit of lip service in itself? No, so obviously there is an element of risk. So there's companies that, you know, will genuinely start to look at climate risk and how it's going to impact their bottom line and their supply chain. And, you know, obviously investors are more interested in the conversation now as well because they see it as a risk. It's also an opportunity. So, you know, there are companies that are now understanding this space are developing products and services around sustainability. And, you know, as we know... Um, younger generation millennials they want to buy products and services that have purpose and align with their values Mm. so again companies are seeing that you're probably seeing you know eco products and brands growing and um, you know so in that sense there's also a big opportunity for business as well Mm -hmm. okay so it's would you say influenced more by consumer sentiment than risk I think it's both because you know the the consumer and the investor you know certainly if they're a, a listed company Mm. um you know do hold huge sway over Mm. business decisions so because you've had such a a long and diverse career what's a an element or a time in your career that you sort of still to this day reflect on can be a success or something you felt you really learned from (laughs) well I think we probably reflect more on our um, failures than we do successes (laughs) the human nature element of this yeah (laughs) the negativity bias um 
But like, I think it's a good thing because um, we learn from our mistakes, right? So there's no point in like just talking about our successes all the time because you don't necessarily learn from them, even though they're great to have. Um, so I think in my early career days, um, you know, I was literally kind of thrust into a sustainability role without really having any experience because nobody did that back then and um you know kind of delivered a, a few projects which um some went well and some didn't um because I just really wasn't prepared to deliver programs on that scale back then you know it's just um and so it's I guess it's all part of a a, a learning curve um so yeah so I guess a lot of my reflections do, do, do come from those early days and then I've like learned, you know, how to how to actually create change. How do you get people on board? How do you get your stakeholders on side? How do you go to the board and ask for money? And you know, it's those kind of things which take time to learn and finesse and you know adapt to each organisation you go to. So, but yeah, certainly in the early days, it was you know just make it up as you go along. And <laughs> I don't know for the best. That was the, my first few years in sustainability, anyway. But I did have some big wins as well. So. Mm-hmm. So I feel like the concept of in the early days going to the board and saying, so this is really important and we need money for X, Y, Z. They must have been some difficult conversations. Or did you ever feel like you were equipped to have them and you didn't actually have them and you could have? Like, Where were those moments, um, I guess, where you had that real learning? There were, um, there were difficult conversations because even if they got it, it was always a low priority, you know, like operations or bottom line or, you know, that all everything else would come before that in terms of priority. So even though they got it or even if they got the moral argument as opposed to a commercial argument, um, it would still be a difficult job asking for time, attention, resource, money, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. Mm. And so were you often, was the sustainability team often known as like all the greenies of the office? Was there a bit of that bias as well when you first started or even as you continue in your career? I'm not sure. Yeah, I think I think there is. I think it depends on the organisation um, because sometimes it is looked at like, oh, the sustainability team, they're the ones that do sustainability and we then we don't really have to because they've got it covered you know so and it's like no everyone in the organization needs to do sustainability it's not just these to this team of people but yeah I had an interesting experience this week when I I'm very passionate about promoting a sustainability framework with my organization and I was I'm lucky enough to be selected to be on the working group and um, my my boss says to me you're, you love sustainability, so that's why you're on it, because of your passion, you know. And, and I said, well, I, I also just think it should be everyone's passion. I'd love for it to be, you know, for sustainability to work, it needs to be embedded and everyone needs to feel like they have a responsibility for it. And you get the kind of smile and nod as if to say, that's fantastic, I have zero idea how to help you do that. She's got the greatest of intentions, but um, it's really difficult, I think, to embed it. And it's easier to say, oh, that's your responsibility and you think about it because I don't have capacity to because I've got to manage this, that or the other. I think so. I think the easier you can make it for people to say, this is what you need to do. This Mm. is your, this is your part, you know, Mm. and building that learning and that confidence, I guess, that everyone can act, everyone can do stuff. You don't have to be a sustainability expert. Mm. You or everyone in through their everyday actions and decisions um, will have an impact. Yeah. Mm. Now, I've been watching you eagerly since I met you three years ago and I must say you really have found your purpose within the climate change emergency. So how important do you think it is to take the time to understand what lights you up and what did that journey look like for you? 
Hmm. <laughs> wow. Well, I think, yeah, I think initially my um, purpose in the climate journey started as a business imperative. And, and then it's very much moved into a personal why for me. So like obviously when I first, I mean, it's obviously still a business imperative, but in terms of my role in it. So it was initially about working with businesses and, you know, setting climate change targets. And then um, through that personal purpose journey, it's now become a a personal why. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess it's, it started when I did CSL, um, Centre for Sustainable Leadership Programme. As you remember, we had to write a five-minute talk on a topic that we were passionate about. I wrote this talk and it was very, like, it was quite dry and it was full of facts and figures and, you know, it just, like, I didn't really get into the why of why was this topic important to me. I just knew that um, it was. So it was about, you know, girls' education and climate change and the links between the two. And then, you know, obviously the great facilitators that we had in the course, they kind of push you and push you into deeper into like thinking about, okay, so what is it you're trying to say? And why are you trying, why are you trying to say this? And then uh, actually what emerged was a very personal story about women's empowerment and girls' education in my own family and how that had played out over three generations. So basically my, my, um, my grandma was illiterate most of her life. She didn't get to go to school um, and went back to school at 60 uh, to learn to read and write English because she wanted to read the Bible as a born-again Christian. Um, my mum, you know, never got to go to college because she had to have an arranged marriage. And then she eventually went back to university or to college and, you know, founded two businesses. And then there was me who, you know, I've got like millions of degrees or it feels like I've got millions of degrees. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I love learning. Love of learning is my number one value. But unfortunately, there's still 130 million girls around the world that don't get to go to school simply because they are a girl. Obviously, this issue started to become more and more important to me. It became much more of a, a personal journey as to... Um, you know, I'm now in this privileged position and I've got to a place of privilege and therefore I should pass that on in the sense that I should help others achieve that status that I've been able to, you know, through the generations. And then I was at a, a purpose conference um, a couple of years ago and Paul Hawking was there and he was talking about Project Drawdown and he said, um, you know, we've, we've done the maths and we've looked at the solutions and girls' education and women's family planning is one of the number one solutions to climate change and um, I guess that was a real kind of aha moment for me because then it brought together two areas that I was really passionate about so it was kind of just a total no-brainer that I needed to do something in this area and it's quite funny he says that the solution wasn't a solar panel it was a woman and that actually surprised them it surprised lots of people it surprised the researchers that were working on drawdown and so obviously within those solutions there's there's, there's solar, there's agriculture, there's refrigeration, there's a number of different things that need to happen. But I guess no one anticipated the links between gender equality and climate change, the way that it, it kind of came about as being um, such a powerful solution. And so tell us a bit about it being a powerful solution. For those who might not be aware, like what is the implications of or rather what other impacts that gender equality have on reducing and curbing emissions. Like that's fundamentally what that... So for everyone, Project Drawdown, 100 Solutions to Resolve um, Climate Change, written by Paul Hawken and um, many, many scientists uh, worldwide. And you're right, it, it was... Um, I was at that conference with you. Yeah. Paul Hawken, uh, that was an absolute 
moment in time that I'll always remember. Um, obviously, when he said refrigerants were number one, we all gasped. <laughs> That's boring. <laughs> Sell us a better number one, please. Yeah. But the facts are the facts and we accept yeah. them as they are. Um, but we you... accept science. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, the importance of finding the solutions that light you up. You know, if you're not lit up by refrigerants, that's cool. Yeah. That's cool. But you're lit up by um, empowering girls and gender equality and why is that so important? Why is it in the top ten? Yeah. So I guess the first one is if a girl goes to school and she managed to stay in school, she will, one, marry later, and two, have less children. So there's a clear implication there from a population perspective. So if girls did go to school, I think there was a, a statistic that the, the population would decrease by 1 billion by 2050 if every girl was allowed to go to school and finish school and not have to leave because there's a, you know, an arranged marriage or she becomes a child bride and things like that. So that's that. That's the first one. The other one is if a girl is educated, she will have more knowledge about family planning and the rights that she has over her own body, etc. So again, that has that implication linked to population. The other thing is obviously if girls go to school, they will have more earning power and um, they actually reinvest their earnings in their family and their community. So... It's called the girl effect. We've, it's, it's been known about for quite some time. Um, so that has multiple benefits across the community because obviously that money is not being earned and sent somewhere else. It's, it's helping the local community. And then the other thing is the links between women that are educated and agriculture. Women are the majority of smallholder farmers across the world. And compared to men, they have less access to resources, less land rights. Uh, less access to equity and training. But if you closed that gap, they would be able to produce more food on the same amount of land. So not only is it implications for food, it has implications for deforestation because we're not clearing more land to grow more food. We're able to just, you know, use the land that we're already cultivated. Yeah, and then we can preserve more forests. So we could actually avoid another 2 billion tonnes of emissions by 2050 if you empowered women farmers in the same way or you gave them the same rights that, and access to training and resources that men had. Mm. And, you know, when you start to look at stats like that, it just blows your mind. It's kind of like, so why aren't we doing this? This is just, you know, it feels like a, a total no-brainer. So there is this link which we, it's not obvious, you know. We don't necessarily make it unless you have heard about this project, which is obviously a very groundbreaking project, or, you know, you have an interest in it and you go to look it up, you don't necessarily know about it. So that's something that um, I now actively go and I do talks and, you know, I'll, I'll tell people about it and I'll fundraise and, you know, things like that so that we people can have this awareness and knowledge of how do you join up these big issues, these big topics, because, you know, gender equality, that's something as old as time itself. And then, you know, climate change, which is this imperative that's happening now. And it's kind of like, well, look, we need to start thinking more holistically and more systemically about these issues and not Mm. trying to tackle them in isolation. Mm. And I believe it was actually Paul Hawken, um, potentially at purpose, that did mention that climate change is (laughs) the solutions to climate change is, is kind of baffling because they're all things that we should be doing anyway, especially when it comes to gender equality. I don't think it could be more true for this particular topic because I look at it from the outside and I think this to me is just a a social good and it's essential for for everyone, for communities everywhere. And yet it also has a huge impact on 
the climate and it seems like that is laced throughout that whole project and I don't know if you feel the same way where oh totally yeah so like you know yeah so you've got links between gender and agriculture you've got links between gender and energy you know imagine if you empowered um, all those women in those communities to learn about renewable energy as opposed to you know relying on the horrible like kerosene lamps and things like that so um, yeah it's definitely laced throughout you know I came across this quote and I, I don't know whose it is so I don't know who to attribute it to but I saw it online um, and it says some things break your heart but fix your vision that's what that did for me like it's still it breaks my heart that there's still 130 million girls around the world not in school and it breaks my heart that women don't have the right to choose when where and you know how they have children and what they can do with their bodies but it does it has focused me on yes this is a topic this is something I need to show up for and I need to use my voice for and that's something uh, I've been thinking a lot about is the power of voice and how we use our voice for those that don't have voice so you know for me those girls they don't have a voice nobody's listening to them because they're not seen as valued or you know the environment doesn't have a voice and we have to speak on its behalf or animals and you know things like that so it's how you um how you lend your voice for those that don't have it so I had this hashtag which is voice for good and that's again something that drives me is like okay so how can I use my voice for good for those that don't have a voice I think that is a call to everyone really in terms of how can you use your voice in terms of whether it's about doing more in the workplace or writing to your MP or you know sharing stuff on social media like it's all powerful stuff and you know we 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 all have that certainly those of us that live in privileged and developed countries we have the power of voice um and you know too often I think we don't use it Mm. That is absolutely true of a lot of things and I would say Australia is quite a good example of the apathy around voice yes and uh, I don't Australian politics are very interesting (laughs) and have been for a few years haven't they (laughs) I like I thought British politics is bad but oh my god I came to Australia and I was like what is this show you know like how many prime ministers and oh my goodness I I know Boris and Barnaby should go have dinner Um, it's uh, (laughs) it's it is an interesting thought though around um around voice and I've had uh, the pleasure of hearing you present before you're a fantastic storyteller and I really uh, appreciate those moments where I get to hear you share your voice and in particular story your story and your, the reason why this is so important mm-hmm. to you it's so beautiful and I think too often we overlook the uniqueness in us individually yeah. um, and we need to share it more often so thank you for those stories yeah and I think also we don't know the value of our own stories mm. you know like sometimes we we, we play it down or um, you know and everyone's got a story right regardless of what it is and sometimes we don't know the value of it and other times we don't want to share it because we think it's insignificant or it's mm. silly or mm. um, you know so it does some for some people it takes more courage than others to actually own your story and share it Mm. it's quite funny I'm thinking back to when we did retreat two with CSL and we were working really hard on our stories and uh, Luke who was our coach I guess on um, storytelling a fantastic um, presenter and creative and he turns to me and says because I'd given some half-assed attempt at, you know, a similar facts and figures kind of speech about why food was very important and agriculture was essential and the future of food. And, and he turns to me and goes, I don't buy it. You know, what, why? Why does it matter to you? Like, and I put me on the spot in front of 50 people and I kind of just sat there and thought, 
well, Luke, I don't know. It's because, you know, it's the thing that holds people together. And he's like, there you go. Yeah. There you go. Thank you. I was like, wow, that was really hard. Luke. <laughs> but they get it out of you. Yeah. They do. They coach it out of you. And it's all, you know, so those semi-insignificant things that you think, oh, no, but it just makes sense to me. It's the, the powerful yeah. story. But it's also that why, right? Because, you know, that's like, I don't know if you've seen the um, the Simon Sinek stuff mm. on the, you know, around why it's like people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it, mm. and it's so true. It's you know, it's like so for me, um, going to somebody and saying, you know, I want I'm delivering this training or I'm delivering this talk, and it's because I'm passionate about girls' education, and this is why. And I go into the story of you know, um, my own family, um, it's far more powerful mm. and memorable. Mm. Mm. And so, you've taken all that your story and that um, acute vision that you have and that sense of responsibility and you took a bit of time mm-hmm. to think that through and I'd love to hear a bit more about that that pause you took and how that then led you to the impact faculty which is a really exciting yeah. piece of work that you're working on as well as being a mum having a full-time role doing other things in your community so you've got a very um high sense of responsibility you're doing a lot of things but I think the impact faculty really encapsulates that for you Yes, it does. I think it was about two years ago that I um, quit the role I was in then and took some time out. It was my pause, yes. Mm. And I think at the time I didn't really know uh, where, I didn't obviously didn't know where that was going to lead to or what was going to happen. But I think the, the real beauty of taking time out is that it does give you a chance to not only reflect, but go in a direction that you are curious about, you know, without that pressure of, you know, like a day-to-day being reactive to things or, you know, so certainly for me, I took the time out, I did nothing for a short amount of time and then I just followed my curiosity and just went, right, what is it that I'm drawn to? What is it that I'm good at? Um, And then that's how, I guess, Impact Faculty emerged because, you know, I knew that I I was very passionate about sustainability and engaging people in that and and learning I knew I was passionate about girls education so okay how can I bring those things together so the impact faculty was born in April of this year and it's basically an organization that does sustainability training and education in the view that you know profits from that all those courses and training that's delivered would then go to girls education um, so I partnered with an organization called one girl and you know so I would literally just provide funding for them and then they go and deliver the amazing projects that they deliver around girls education in Africa so yeah that's how that's how that came about and it was all very organic and you know it wasn't like uh, it was this thing and I'm like oh yeah I'm gonna do it 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 really did evolve you know over time like first it was just going to be a training organization then it was no it's going to be a social enterprise and it was no it's gonna be something else and it was just like I'm you know it's it's trial and error and it's just kind of going with it and learning from what works and what doesn't and you know even now I don't really know exactly what the impact faculty is like I think it's a social enterprise but I don't know who knows like it just social enterprise doesn't even have like a a real definition in Australia so you know for me I guess it's more of a a, you know an organization with purpose so it allows me to bring together a, a number of different values and passions and yeah so tell us a little bit more about One Girl and why you partnered with them specifically. So One Girl is an Australian-based organisation. So they're, they're based in Melbourne. And as I said, they do girls' education in Uganda and Sierra Leone. So they are 
two of the toughest countries to be born a girl. And that's why those those countries are particularly important. And they've been they're they're well established. They've been going for some time. They're really fun. They do a lot of fun campaigns. And um and yeah, I just thought it was you know, and I I've met I've been working with them for a while anyway in terms of a fundraising perspective. So I already had an existing relationship, and then I went to them and said, "Oh hey, I've got this idea. I want to partner with on the impact faculty." And they were like, "Yeah, great." And so it kind of again came about organically because I already had an existing relationship with them, and also I feel like they're one of the organisations in Australia that are doing the most in this space. So like obviously you'll have like. Oxfam and Plan and you know UN Women, but these are like global organisations doing mm-hmm. stuff. Whereas One Girl is is an Australian organisation that has a, a decent following and still growing. Um, so that's why I, I partnered with them. Brilliant. And they've got is it One Girl who has an event coming up in October? Tell us about that event. There's something happening in October that everyone can kind of get behind if they want to if they're lit up by this that they can follow and get behind. Yes, so it is called Do It In A Dress. So September to October is um, Do It In A Dress season. So um, basically people wear a school dress to do various things. So they might go for a surf in a school dress, they might run a marathon, you know, they might go to work in a school dress. Like it doesn't really matter what the thing is, it's just that you're wearing the dress while you do it. And the idea behind it is that you're wearing a school dress for those who can't. And then obviously you're raising funds. So it's a sponsored mm-hmm. initiative. And and yeah, it's really fun. And it kind of like it, it took off in Australia a couple of years ago. And like the photos of all these people doing stuff in school dresses kind of like went viral. Um, and then since then, it's been a program that's run and or a campaign that's run every year around the same time. So I will also be doing it in a dress this year. So I'm going to go to work for a week in a school dress and uh, I'll be putting up my link and like, you know, getting people to, to sponsor me to do that. And, you know, so I'll just be going to meetings and presenting to boards and whatever else I'll be doing that week, but I'll be doing it in a dress. Um, and I have done it before, as you know, that I did an event last not last year, maybe the year before, where we, we had a film screening and a panel and, you know, myself and the panel all wore dresses as well at the, the same time. So it's definitely really fun. So yeah, if people want to get involved, they can go to the One Girl website and just set up a fundraising page and One Girl will post about a dress for mm. their size, you know, because that's normally the one thing that comes up. Where am I going to get a dress from? There's not going to be a dress that fits me. I'm like... Don't worry, we've got all that covered. We can get you a dress in your size. It'll be posted to your house. Like, it's easy, you know? Mm. Don't come up with excuses. Just do it. Like, yeah. So, Asha Kayla, LinkedIn, she's very active. If you wanted to support her while she's wearing a dress, I would love a photo of you wearing a school dress presenting to the board, if that's okay. I think that's appropriate, personally. Yeah. I'm going to have to get two, actually, because I was thinking if I'm going to wear it for a week, I don't want to wear the same one every day. So, I mean, I've got one. I'm going to have to get another one Um, so I could just change it up and not be like, you know, that stinky person in the office. Oh, gosh. And look, as we're sitting here, it's actually less than a week away from the global climate strike, which is huge in itself. And I just think, you know, we're coming up to Do It In A Dress, which is obviously an annual event that uh, is really significant for your why. And then you've got just this surge. 2019 has just been Mm. formidable. And I would just love to get your thoughts on, you know, how are you feeling at the moment how is your focus going how is because you've been working in this for 15 years and that to me just says resilience endurance mm. persistence you know there's but it's all coming it feels like it's all coming to a head but I don't know have have you been here before have you been in this headspace like where are you feeling 
Um, look, I feel quite hopeful. Mm. I do. Um, you know, certainly there's been times where you go, what the hell? Where where are we? What are we doing? Are we ever going to solve this? You know, and I, and I did get, I have had points where I've just gone, why am I even bothering? Like, I'm sick of just having this same conversation. Mm. You know, you, I'm sick of having this same conversation with people that this is something they need to take seriously and um you know so I certainly have had those moments of despair but right now I think we're at a tipping point and we are because we've only got a certain amount of time left to to work on climate change so I do think we're at a tipping point I think you know certainly the youth have stepped up obviously we've got Greta who's doing amazing things to bring attention and you know the school climate strike and also we have the sustainable development goals which Mm. in themselves are, are quite uh, an achievement like the fact that they were they were put together and agreed by all the UN member states and obviously climate is a key thing that runs through all of those SDGs mm. so I do think we are at this point now where there is a tipping point that we have got big businesses doing stuff you have got you know large organizations going 100% renewable and companies and, and countries that are trying to move towards renewables and reduce their consumption and you know so that there is still the naysayers there are still people that are climate deniers and don't believe it and are very much self-interested in coal and money and you know that's that's kind of not gone away but at the same time I do feel quite hopeful Mm. and when you do have things like the climate strike which is being supported by so many businesses like that's amazing there's never been that point in time Mm. in Australia anyway before so Mm. I think that's quite exciting. I get excited as well but I also I try and reflect on our federal election that happened this year and I think one of the things that came out of that was that we need to be listening to people who don't necessarily either agree with us or aren't on the same social political spectrum Mm -hmm. as us. So this whole conversation that's moving towards, you know, we really need to have bipartisan support for Mm -hmm. the climate emergency and then the kinds of conversations that are required to get there. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if that's something that within your your peers and your colleagues in this space that you've started thinking about how to, or if that's something that's on, on people's minds about how do we actually get bipartisan support? Have we reached that point where that's really now the next priority? I think I think we're starting to, like if you see the number of councils that are starting to mm, declare climate emergency, mm. like that is a bipartisan decision because the whole council, regardless of you know their political alignment, will agree to that. And we're starting to see more councils across Australia doing that, which is great. So, mm. and that's a, a first step. So even if we're not getting the leadership from federal government we're getting some leadership from local government which is great but yeah um you know unfortunately it is a very polarized debate and social media doesn't always help we end up you know getting into these polarized and um you know really kind of heated debates online with people we don't even know and you know everyone's a keyboard warrior and it's like oh my goodness and yeah so uh, yeah i think it is important for all of us to yeah listen to those different voices and different perspectives and meet people where they're at Mm. and there's some organizations doing some great work on that climate for change climate for change yes they're doing some great stuff on this where you know they'll actually host a conversation and facilitate a discussion and it doesn't matter where you're at it's more about let's just have a chat Mm. you know it's not about trying to convince you and convert you and it's more let's just hold a space and be able to talk about this and you know ask the stupid questions or say why you do or don't believe in this thing and things like that so they're they're, I think as an organization they're one that is doing some really great work Mm -hmm. on that conversation piece yeah Mm -hmm. and find those people and learn from them I suppose is the is the piece 
Yeah, because I think, I mean, I read a statistic which was really quite shocking is that when people learn some information, it's pretty much they hold that information for a very long time Mm -hmm. and it's really hard to unlearn that. Mm -hmm. So a lot of views and perspectives that people have, even if they're outdated, they tend to hold on to them. And I think that's a really interesting point for certainly, you know, change makers and people that they need to know that that's something. So if you learned something 10 years ago uh, and somebody said, you know, climate change isn't real, all the stats are false, they might hold on to that for a very, very long time. And it would, it's not something that you're easily going to convince them otherwise. So, yeah, I think it's really, it's definitely really interesting how people learn and I guess how we have to unlearn. Mm because we don't very easily take on we're not very easily swayed we're not easily persuaded when we hold on to something we have a perspective or a value that doesn't change easily mm-hmm. and we're the product of the five people we spend the most time with yeah. so there's that concept as well that not everyone is going to be the right messenger to deliver a message for a specific person so it's about finding champions within the community that other yeah. people can look to and see themselves in as well totally and um it's quite funny like there's even there's people in my own family that are not necessarily the most sustainable people and you know it's funny like every time I say they'll be like yeah I do my recycling and it's kind of like you know I do my bit and you know even my mom she's not the most um sustainable person either and it's so funny we went shopping when she was last in Australia and um the lady behind the counter said uh, would would you like a carry bag with your purchase and she went oh no thank you we have to you know we all have to do our bit for the planet and I just laughed at <laughs> I just laughed at her and I said, since when did you start caring about, you know, you're doing your bit for the planet? And she's like, oh, only when I'm with you, Ash. And I was like, okay. You know, it's like, it was just hilarious. But it it, it is true. It's that who you spend the time, who you spend the most time with and um, being the product of that. So, yeah, I'm, look, I'm actually influencing my, you know, mother who is obviously of a different generation and a shopaholic. So, um, yeah. My mum's a shopaholic too and she's a cruiser. She loves cruises. If you're listening to this, Julie, I have no issue with your cruise obsession, but I think the whole concept of cruises really ekes me out. But anyway, that's a conversation for another day. Trouble, yes. Oh, gosh. Now, I know that girls' empowerment is a real passion of yours, but there's another piece that you just touched on around sustainable development goals or the SDGs. Mm. And I feel like... It's been really exciting to see some of the courses and the workshops that you've been developing on that particular topic because it's really putting what is essentially a fundamental sustainability framework into action, which I think is that translation piece. And what was some of the learnings you had from delivering those courses and the kind of engagement that you got? The learnings for me were that that you had to take uh, what is a very kind of high-level global agenda and make it local. Mm. and relevant so whether it's a local council whether it's a business whether it's an NGO it really comes down to what does this mean for me and my organization you know and that's that that's probably the key learning because I mean even with climate change sometimes it can feel like this big thing that's out there and it's a global topic and I can't do anything locally and um and you know that's very much the same with the sustainable development goals they're like these big lofty goals and you know it's like we've got till 2030 to achieve them and 
you know, the UN set them and it's someone else's responsibility to deliver them. And it's like, no, that's not the case. It's more about, okay, so if you're a local government, how do you, how do you um, measure your progress towards them? If you're a business, how do you integrate them into your strategy mm. um, in a meaningful way? If you're an NGO, how can you use them to partner with other organisations and, mm. you know, bring your expertise to an organization that needs you know the skills that you have as an NGO um you know so it's so for me it was that real kind of cross-sector piece uh, as well like how can these organizations work better together using the SDGs as a common language mm. um and that's that's again probably something we've not had before mm. so mm. another thing that makes me very hopeful <laughs> and do you think like through those workshops do you think that that common language and that common ground was able to be gained? Is that something that you saw happen or do you think that the journey is only, I suppose everyone's at different places is probably part, part of the answer. You've got some people who were early adopters mm-hmm. and others that aren't really sure how it applies to them or they aren't sure if they should be taking responsibility. But yeah. how's the language changing? And did you actually get a chance to work with lots of different types of organisations or was it more, were you seeing a bit of a trend in the people that were seeking it, your um, help? No, definitely work with different organisations. What I haven't done is work with different organisations in the same room, which mm. I think would be pretty amazing mm. so you know obviously you know like a council would come to me and say oh, we want to do a workshop for this team or it was a business focused workshop or so but but there hasn't I haven't done or I haven't seen anything where it's bringing all those sectors together in mm. one room and going okay how could you actually work together to solve some of this and I think that's the real exciting bit that I haven't seen quite happen yet in the way that it could but yeah definitely everyone's at different places some people are still learning other people have already been on the journey for a few years and you know taking it to the next level and so yeah it's very it's definitely an interesting space mm. and it feels you know as someone who considers themselves a bit of an entrepreneur for want of a better term uh, you know trying to to see through some change and support change in the agricultural sector you know I think the workshops that you were doing were so fundamental because it is daunting if you're the change agent inside an organisation or you've got yeah. a couple of people who really want to see something happen. It really is people power, but you've got to have the tools and the language to use. And as you said, you know, those those board presentation skills and the, the bucket of money yes. sometimes as well. So, Yeah, and I also think that because the goals are so universal, like there's 17 different topics. So there's there's definitely one or two in there that, anybody would be able to relate to you know so for me it would be you know SDG 4 and 5 which is education and gender for someone else it might be um, you know SDG 14 life below water you know so there's 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 something in there that everyone will have some sort of passion Mm. or anger around you know (laughs) that they're not they're not happy about or they're like yeah I just it's unfair that we've got still got people living in poverty or it's unfair that we've got you know so much plastic pollution in the ocean so there's something in there that everyone can um, have purpose around and I think that is also really valuable so again sometimes when I do workshops I'll ask people all right which one of these is most important to you and why you know and they'll say it's you know it's gender equality or it's life on land because I'm really passionate about wildlife or whatever it might be so there's there's always that link back to purpose as well on an individual level Mm. so again it's about as I said before it is about taking that global agenda and make putting bringing it right down to that individual's why so powerful 
So this has been a really lovely conversation. I feel like I've learned more about you, my friend, Asha. It's lovely. It is nice. We don't take enough time to stop and think about these and have these deep conversations anymore. But is there anything else? We've talked through a lot of maybe your history and your, and your passion and your work, but is there anything else that you really wanted to share with us today, anything you wanted to contribute or something we haven't touched on that you had hoped to? I mean, I guess the only thing we haven't touched on is the fact that I'm also a mum and, you know, I have a little boy who, as you know, Xavier, who's going to be four. I think that generation is the generation that is really going to be probably impacted most by Mm. climate change and it's frightening as a parent, but also he's learning in a way that, you know, people of our generation never did. Like the other day he came home from daycare and He'd been learning all about the coral reef and plastic pollution and, you know, like, he's not even four yet and he's learning these issues, you know. He'll see uh, a coffee cup on the street Mm -hmm. and say, look, mummy, someone's littered their coffee cup. How naughty are they? I'm like, yes, they're very naughty, you know. So I just feel like as parents, we also have a, a responsibility to teach our children um, about these issues and so that they don't make the same mistakes of our generations, <laughs> you know. So um, I feel like, you know, certainly for all the, you know, the parents listening that then and, and the mums, you know, we even if you're not, you're not working in this space or you don't do something, um, you know, in your workplace related to this, you can, as certainly as a parent or as an aunt or uncle, really try and teach that next generation mm-hmm. in your community. I mean teachers as well like in schools they have a a real influence on children and if it's not built into curriculum like put it in there put it in your classes make lesson plans around it you know it's um i think i think we all have that responsibility to that generation Mm. pay it forward yes thank you so much for talking with us today it's been beautiful thank you thank you for sitting with Asher and I for this conversation. I've really enjoyed getting to know a friend a little bit deeper and I really appreciate you being there with me. I thought it was a fantastic conversation and a beautiful reflection and three things are really stuck with me. Firstly, showing up and using your voice for good on issues that matter to you. Secondly, some things can break your heart but fix your vision, said by Anonymous. And third, that everyone's got a voice and it's not insignificant. It will take courage to own your story, but that that is the birthplace of true connection and influence. That is a message that is powerful and something that Asha, in my opinion, models beautifully in her work and in her life day to day. I learn a lot from her and it's been something that's really resonated with me. Wherever you are, I hope that your day included some magic, laughter and gratitude. And if that's feeling a bit hard to grasp onto right now, don't forget the Climactic community and collective are here for you. Reach out to us on all the normal channels and we'd love to hear from you. Until then, have a fantastic rest of the week and I wish you all the best. Bye. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people behind Climactic and all the shows we produce at climactic.fm. We are a social enterprise podcast network, and we greatly appreciate your support. You can find a link to our Pausable where you can support us directly in the show notes of this episode or from our website. Thank you for listening, and from the whole Climactic Collective, keep up the great work and take care of each other.
in these climactic times. The Climactic Collective. Collective.